0: Well, I don't know if you ever had something that you loved so much that you were afraid of losing. Like, you didn't want to lose it because you just loved it so much. You know, I had an item in my possession that was that way. You see, a couple years ago, I bought a DJI Phantom 4 drone, and I loved this thing, man. I loved it so much. My wife actually said, you know, I think you love that drone more than you love our own children, Jesse." And so me and Drone, we had a special relationship. Sometimes I would tell my wife, you know, me and Drone, we just need some quality time. I'm going to take Drone to the park. Me and Drone, we're going out to get ice cream. Just Drone, we're just spending quality time together. We made memories together. Like There was the memory where I flew Drone over a big herd of cattle in the mountains and caused a stampede. There was uh, another time, you know, where Drone had a close call crashed drone into a 30-story building, and it plummeted down, but it landed in the snow and survived, and that was, that, was a, that was a close call. made me a little nervous, but you can only imagine how I felt when I was flying drone at the Grand Canyon, and the wind caught him. It carried him away, and he would not return, and I watched drone plummet 3,000 feet to its death, so I hurled myself over the edge after it. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. <laughs> Obviously, losing something important to you is sad. It's, it's, it messes you up. But for many, many, many people, they grow up and they lose something far more precious than a drone or an iPhone X or, you know, I don't know, your, sh- your hair straightener. I don't, I don't know what's, like, super important to you. But they lose something so much more important than that. There, there, are, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of kids Every year, it's, it's become a kind of a growing epidemic in our culture of kids who grow up in church, and then they move out of their parents' house, and they don't lose their drone. They lose their faith. They lose their entire faith in Jesus, and they grow up to either just be, you know, uh, uh, nuns, not the kind that wear the black cassocks and stuff. No, no, no. They grow up to be nuns where they have no religious affiliation. They grow up to be atheists. They grow up to be agnostics. And you can read all over the internet, story after story of what are called deconversion stories, stories of kids just like you, who sat in the youth group, who sang the songs, who raised their hands, but they go away to college and they don't believe at all anymore. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. You see, some of you know about the young, trendy, hot pastors, but I want to introduce you to the old, wrinkly, smart pastors, all right? Because you, you, might, you, might, you might know about the hot, young, trendy pastors. You may have Carl Lentz and Rich Wilkerson on, on the gram. But here's the deal. I mean, as much as I love those dudes, Stephen Furtick's muscles aren't going to help you in anthropology class when you've got some professor biting your head off saying that God's just your imaginary friend. It's not going to come to your rescue. And so I want to introduce you to some other guys because you need to know that there are Christians who are so smart that listening to them will melt your face off. All right, that's what I want to tell you about. There's guys, and, I, and you can, you can you know, catch this later on the podcast. Google search these guys, look them up. But there's guys like John Lennox, there's, who's, a, who's actually a physicist and a mathematician. There's guys like William Lane Craig, Ravi Zacharias, Timothy Keller. You need, you, there's there's so, many, so many brilliant Christian thinkers out there. You need to know... That there are scientists who are Christians, like Francis Collins, who mapped the human genome and used to report directly to the president. You need to know that there are atheists who have conversion stories, famous atheists like Ann Wilson and Ann Rice and C.S. Lewis. And I don't want you to just take my word for, you, for it. I want you to become a Christian thinker. I want you to not be afraid to actually use your mind and engage your mind as a Christian. The Bible tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want to encourage you to be a Christian thinker and not just to take my word for it, but to actually listen to the power of their arguments. So tonight is kind of going to be the brutal caboodle, all right? It's going to be the brutal caboodle. Should I send it? Should I just send it? I'm just going to send it. All right, that's what we're doing tonight. We're just going to get a little bit rowdy. We're going to have to think a little bit. But I think for some of you, this is going to come as a life preserver. This is going to come as water to your weary soul. This is going to be like a rescue to a drowning man. This message is going to be that for you. That's my prayer. That's my hope. So the message I've, called, I've titled tonight is called Welcome. Doubters Welcome. Doubters Welcome. And it actually comes from a a verse of scripture in a small little book at the end of the New Testament, the book of Jude. And Jude says this in the NIV, and just just so you know, if you're reading the New King James, the New King James translates it one way, but basically every other translation that's available translates it the same way as the NIV. And it says this, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Uh, In the Passion Translation, it says, keep being compassionate to those who still have doubt. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd speak to us this evening. I know that, that there are people who need that compassion. There are people, when everybody else is singing, they're sitting in the back wondering whether you exist. When everyone else has their hand raised, I know that there are students here who are wrestling and grappling and questioning in their faith. And I pray that tonight they'd they'd be set upon solid ground. I pray that they wouldn't lose heart and they wouldn't give up. And I just pray that this would be a powerful night. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So doubters welcome. Everybody say that to me. All right, that's what Jude's telling us. He's saying, be merciful, be compassionate to those who doubt. Our first point you can write down in your notes is this. The drought of doubt can deepen the roots of faith. The drought of doubt can deepen the roots of faith. There are some churches where maybe unintentionally, they kind of create this attitude where it goes, you got doubt, you better get out. Where they just have this thing like, if you have any kind of question, if you have any kind of skepticism, you aren't welcome here. But I'm here to tell you that is not a biblical church. That's not how Jesus treats people. That's not how Jesus views you and your questions and your doubts. And the reality is this. Churches that stifle questions create skeptics. Churches that stifle questions create skeptics. And and, uh, and what I want you to realize is that church should be a safe place to bring your doubts. It should be a safe place. Your small group should be a safe place to bring the questions that you have, the doubts that you have. So I'm saying doubters welcome. Now, you may not be doubting tonight, and if you're not, that's awesome. That's fantastic. You may not be doubting right now, but you probably have a friend at school who's an agnostic. You probably have a friend at school who's an atheist. Maybe, maybe later on down the line, there's going to be a dark day where you are in a place of doubt. And this message is going to be online, and I want you to be able to refer back to it and use it. Save it for that dark day where you are doubting. Now, I am a doubter, and I kind of want to tell you uh, a little bit of an origin story of my doubts. First off, it started when I started listening to this guy, super famous English guy. Maybe you've heard of him named Richard Dawkins. And I started kind of scoping his stuff out, but it really kind of got kicked into high gear when I was at college, the way it is for a lot of people, because I grew up in the church Grew up going to a Christian school, but then I went to college and I had this English teacher named Kaz Ziemka. All right, and he, he he's taught English, but he was from Poland. So it didn't make a lot of sense. But he was he was an English teacher who spoke Polish from Poland. And he was an interesting guy. He loved Swedish death metal. He was like, Oh yeah, I'm on the Amath." Bring on the Viking Corps. He was like this 60-year-old man, this, like, tall, skinny guy. And he was so interesting. He, he'd come to class and, and, like, plop down in his chair. Like, he just didn't care about anything in the whole world. And he would tell the most weird stories. Like, he'd be like, you know, sometimes you wake up in the morning, you are looking at your stupid face in the mirror, hardly alive, You're not even there. But then you look down at Crest toothpaste tube and you see dangling modifier on Crest toothpaste tube, and instantly you are awakened. You run the computer, write to Crest toothpaste. You have bad grammar on toothpaste tube. Crest toothpaste sends you lifetime supply of toothpaste. (laughs) I'm like, all right, all right. But this guy taught English, but he would bring like Richard Dawkins articles for us to read. I'm like, bro, give me some Shakespeare. This is English class. Like, don't give me doc. He'd bring these atheistic things. And he said that his express purpose was to deconvert his students. And so I spent, you know, thousands of hours pondering and thinking, you know, is there evidence for God? Does it make sense to believe in this God that's invisible that you can't see? Dark nights, wondering and researching and and agonizing and and being the kid sitting in the worship services going, is any of this real or are we all just out of our mind? Are we all just insane? I spent countless hours. I I I spent times driving in my car, screaming at the top of my lungs. But I'm here to tell you this. That through all my doubts, as I kept researching, as I kept investigating, ultimately what was happening was not the end of my faith. It It was a whole new genesis of my faith. My faith was getting deeper than ever before. You see, doubt sometimes is portrayed as a negative thing, but there's a French proverb that says, He who doubts nothing, thinks nothing. He who doubts nothing, thinks nothing. You will never find answers... Until you start asking questions. And a season of doubt can actually be a step toward firm convictions. I've been told that trees roots are forced to go deeper into the soil during seasons of drought to find the water. And that at the end of a season of drought, after its roots go down deeper to find the water, that that tree is more unshakable than it ever was before. And I want you to know that the drought of doubt can deepen the roots of faith. Now, you're probably thinking of some Bible passages that talk about doubt in a negative way. But G. Campbell Morgan, a really famous Bible teacher from England, he says, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief comes from a rebellious will, but doubt comes from a troubled mind and a broken heart. Unbelief comes from a rebellious will, but doubt comes from a troubled mind and a broken heart. When when Thomas comes to Jesus, and and he'd been doubting, and all the other 12 had believed in the risen Christ, but Thomas hadn't, he doesn't say to Thomas, hey, Thomas, you get the heck out of here, You're not an apostle anymore. I know you were doubting. I know you didn't believe in me. No. What does Jesus do? He offers him the exact evidence he was asking for. He welcomes him. He loves him. And he challenges him to trust more deeply. And that's what he does to Thomas. And then Thomas becomes the first disciple to call Jesus God. He's the first one to call Jesus God. Now, there is such a thing as unbelief, and I think what a lot of the people you know who are atheists, they may fall into this category, that it's not just about proof, it's actually about pride. It's not just about reason, it's actually about rebellion. I'll share this quote with you. Dude wrote the book Brave New World. He was a famous author, famous atheist. I think we'll put it on the screen for you, but all this Huxley, the dude who wrote Brave New World, he was an atheist. He said this, he was so honest. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. And the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world isn't concerned exclusively with a problem in philosophy. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally shouldn't do whatever he wants. For myself, no doubt most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a system of morality. We objected to that system of morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. He said, I didn't want the universe to have a meaning. I didn't want there to be a God because I wanted to do whatever I want. I didn't want to have to play by anyone else's rules. And for many people who go away to college, they get into a place where they, they're too busy. They work and then I don't have time for church. I don't have time to go to church. And then before long, everyone that they're hanging out with is getting blazed and getting laid. And before long, believing in Jesus just sounds lame. And the things that used to make sense just don't make sense anymore. But 2 Timothy 2.22 says this. It says, flee also youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace together with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You need to make up your mind right now. That wherever you go, wherever, whatever you do, however you feel, you're going to put down roots with God's people. You need to make up your mind that even in your seasons of doubt, you aren't going to do it alone. You see, you will never follow Jesus fully until you have friends that follow him too. You can't do it alone. We ain't the Lone Ranger's. We're the Power Rangers, all right? It takes a squad, it takes a team. All right, but a, so the drought of doubt can deepen the roots of faith. Our next thought is this biblical faith is reasonable faith. Biblical faith is reasonable faith. I'll tell you a little story. At around the same time that I was going to college, uh, there was a guy here at the church, and he actually, you know, he, he did have a handicap, but he was really funny. And he was very extroverted, and he had no physical boundaries. And he'd come up and squeeze my shoulders, and he'd always call me Jesse Wessy. He'd go, Jesse Wessy, I've seen you watching Baywatch. You've been chasing girls. And I'm like, no, man, I've been here all night, I swear. I haven't been watching Baywatch or chasing girls. And he's like, I've seen you. You were on the Jerry Springer show, Jesse Wessy. You were on there. And I'm like... All right, Jason, you're you're really squeezing my shoulders. This hurts. Well, anyways, when I'm riding the bus to school, I'd see him at church all the time. When I'm riding the 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 you know the bus to school, minding my own business, got my iPod in, kind of in my groove, and I kind of look up in horror as I see Jason getting on the bus. I'm like, oh, man, here he comes. And he gets all excited, does his usual baywash routine with me. He's like, Jesse, Wessie. And then, and then a little time goes by, he goes, Jesse Wessie, you've never been baptized. Jesse Wessie. And he dumps an entire bottle of water on my head. And that exits the bus immediately. And I'm left there soaking. And the whole bus is watching. And I'm like, oh, my God. I, I have been baptized, Jason. But now I've been baptized again. This is fantastic. Well, how unreasonable would it be if I decided, you know what? Forget this Christianity thing. Forget Jesus, I'm rejecting Christ, Christians are weirdos, that made me feel so uncomfortable, that was so wrong of him to do that, you would be like, Jesse, that's so unreasonable. That was just a misled man, just being, being silly, that's, that doesn't reflect what the Bible teaches, that's not how the Bible says we should treat people, you think that's so unreasonable. Well, that's exactly how I feel when I meet people who say, you know, I grew up in church and they told me to just believe just believe. And I asked questions, and I had, I had problems, and I had doubts, and they would just tell me, you just better believe. You just got to believe. I'm here to tell you that is not biblical Christianity. This thoughtless, emotional, just, just you just got to believe, hope for a miracle. You know, every, every cloud has a silver lining. That's not biblical Christianity. And you can't reject it any more than I can reject Christianity because of a crazy man baptizing me on the bus. First uh, Peter 3.15 says this, In your hearts reveal revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, when it says to give a reason, the word there is apologia, and it means a defense. And we get the word apologetics. And if you want to read about you know Ravi Zacharias and William Lane Craig and all these guys, you'll find him in the apologetics section in the bookstore. I don't really like the word apologetics, because like, what am I apologizing for being a Christian? <laughs> like, am I saying sorry? That's not what it means. The word apologia has the word logos in it. That's where we get the word logic. It means that you're giving a logical reason for why you believe. It, it, it's it's a logical argument. Why do you believe in Christianity? I want you to think about that. Why do I believe this? Why do I believe that it's true? Can you give a logical answer? Can you give like a courtroom case, a court defense? This verse says that every Christian should be able to do that. Every Christian. You know, when you tell people to believe, don't just tell them what to believe. Tell them why to believe it. Don't just tell them what to believe. Tell them why to believe it. Ten times in the book of Acts, It says that Paul reasoned with people in the marketplace. He reasoned with people. He gave them evidence. He gave them a logical case, a logical defense. Um, So biblical faith is reasonable faith. Biblical faith is reasonable faith. Um, Luke starts off this way. You know, people. some people say, oh, the Bible's just a bunch of fairy tales. It's all just a bunch of fairy tales about Jesus. Check out the way the gospel of Luke starts off. This is how the Gospel of Luke starts off. Does this sound like a myth? Many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been accomplished among us just as they were handed down to us, beginning with those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. It seems to me... to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. Luke talked to eyewitnesses. He investigated. He made an account. And I want to encourage you to investigate. I want to encourage you to do the hard yards, to do the research, to look into it. All right, so our first thought is that the drought of doubt can deepen the roots of faith. Our next thought is that biblical faith is reasonable faith. Then we're going to get into this. Everyone believes in things that they can't see. Everyone believes in things that they can't see. Does this, does this ever weird you out that, like, we can't see God? Like, we're followers of Jesus, but that does get a little bit difficult considering that he's invisible. <laughs> it's like following him would be a lot easier if I could actually see where he's going and see what he's doing. And there are people who want to find physical proof of God. But you know, there's a metaphor that's really helpful. It comes to us from the Bible. In Acts 3.15, Peter calls Jesus the author of life. The author of Of life. God relates to us the way J.K. Rowling relates to Harry Potter. What if Harry Potter ran around Hogwarts looking for physical evidence of Rowling? You know, he would never find Rowling in Hogwarts, he'd never find her anywhere. I mean, Frodo would never find uh, Tolkien in Middle Earth or in the Shire, but does that mean that Rowling doesn't exist? No, not at all. You see God is the author of our story. He is near to us, but he is separate from us. Now something you'll hear very often is people saying, you shouldn't believe anything unless it's scientifically provable. You shouldn't believe anything unless it's scientifically provable. That's that's a that's a philosophy of viewpoint called scientism. But what philosophers point out is that the statement you should only believe things that are scientifically provable isn't scientifically provable <laughs> you can't prove that that's a philosophical viewpoint that can't be proven you know you can't you can't prove that in a test tube that's a position that you a faith assumption that you make everyone believes in things that they can't see you know and that same person you know down in knob Hill uh you know you know smoking weed and and just like you know. I don't know, having a bunch of bumper stickers all over their car, because that seems to be like what they do. They just put like so many bumper stickers on their car. It's excessive. Just take it down a notch, everybody. But, uh, but, but, but that person, that same person who says, you know, I believe in science. I believe in evidence. I won't believe in God until you prove it to me. That same person is incredibly passionate about women's rights, And incredibly passionate about rights of immigrants and rights of minorities. But here's the thing. Give me some scientific proof of human rights. Give me scientific proof that every single human being is equal. You see, you can't prove that. That's that's a philosophical position. You can't prove that scientifically. And I've sat there and asked people, like, hey, do you believe in human rights? They're like, oh, yeah, I'm big on human rights. I'm passionate about human rights. And you go, why do you believe in human rights? And they go, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know why I'm passionate about it. You see, you can't put human rights in a test tube. You can't look up human rights under a microscope. You can't look at uh, human rights through a telescope. You can't prove them scientifically. And some people go, well, I believe in animal rights. Well, I'll tell you something. Animals don't believe in animal rights. The lion does not believe in the rights of the gazelle. You know, sloth bears eat their babies freaking sloth bears man they don't believe they don't they don't believe in animal rights you know that they actually don't believe in human rights in china or in india or in africa or in parts of africa or in korea you don't want to know why we believe in human rights in america because of christianity because of Christianity, because of the influence of Christian thinkers down through the centuries. That's why Martin Luther King Jr., who is the biggest civil rights advocate, I mean, people got posters of them on their bedroom wall. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, Man is more than a tiny vagary of whirling electrons from the smoke. In, the, in other words, he's saying, we're not just matter. We didn't just come from nothing. Man is more than a vagary of whirling electrons or a wisp of smoke from the limitless smoldering. Man is a child of God, made in his image, and therefore he must be regarded as such. See, the only way to believe in human rights is to believe in God, because here's the deal. If you believe in equality, people are so passionate about equality, here's the deal. We're not equal in intelligence. We're not equal in size. We're not equal in speed. We're not equal in strength. The only thing that makes us equal, the only reason why we believe in the equality in the West Is because we're all equally made by God. We're all equally loved by God. We're all equally sinners, saved by God. That's the only reason to believe in human rights. And you don't have to take my word for it, I won't read you the whole quote. But Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German atheist, said exactly that. He said, said the, 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 the doctrine that is passed into modernity is the doctrine of equality of souls before God. It's the basis of all theories of equal rights. Now, there are many atheists who are passionate about equal rights, but here's the thing. Human rights make most sense when you believe in God. And it's not just that. It's not just human rights that make more sense when you believe in God. Science makes more sense when you believe in God. Science makes more sense when you believe in God. You see, before you can do any science, you have to make two philosophical assumptions. And I'll try to put them simply for you. You have to assume that your brain works. You don't really think about it, but you assume that whenever you do science. And you have to assume that the world is actually logical and understandable. You have to make those assumptions. But atheistic evolution leads you to the exact opposite conclusion. You know, maybe you have doubts, but you know who else had doubts? Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin doubted his atheism. And Charles Darwin said this, The horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which have been developed from the minds of lower animals, are any value or trustworthy at all. I'll give you another quote. There's an atheist philosopher at New York University named Thomas Nagel, But he wrote a book, he's an atheist, but he wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. Here's the subtitle for it. The materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. So here's an atheist saying Darwinism doesn't make sense. And here's one of the reasons why he said this. He said, evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our capacities that undermines their reliability and in so doing undermines itself let me translate what darwin and thomas nagel said you. they're saying this if my brain is just an accident of nature i have no reason to trust my brain you see and that's what philosophers more and more are realizing the moment you quit believing in god you have no reason to believe in reason the moment you quit believing in God, you have no reason to believe in reason. But I believe in reason, and I believe in logic, because I believe God is logical, and I'm made in his image. And so that's why it makes so much... He, and so people go, you're a person of faith, I'm a person of reason. You go, hey, wait a minute, hey girl, hey, let me tell you something. You know, and you lay it out for them. All right, next thought is this. If we come from nothing, then in the end, nothing matters that's pretty intense if we come from nothing then in the end nothing matters now i want to just have a little caveat here i want to let you know something i want you to know that atheists are not fanged villains okay they're not like these bad people who you know wear black eyeliner and want to steal your soul and they're not these horrible monsters actually i know atheists who are like really cool <laughs> i know some atheists i like them better than some of the christians i know <laughs> Like like there are cool atheists, there are funny atheists, there are intelligent atheists. Because here's the deal everyone's made it in God's image. Even even the atheist, everyone's made in God's image. And so I, I'm not trying to like scare you. You're gonna have awesome professors at college. And if everyone's made in God's image, you can learn something from everyone. But here's what I figured out. Most atheists have not thought out the implications of their position. They've not thought out the implications of their position. I'll give you an example of somebody who has thought out the implications of their position. There's a TV show I watch called Fargo, okay? And see, and it's pretty brutal, all right? <laughs> Warning. Sixth graders, do not watch this show. But, uh, but it's got Billy Bob Thorne in it. It's got Martin Freeman in it. Who's Martin Freeman? Martin Freeman is the only white dude in Black Panther. <laughs> the only white guy in Black Panther. He was also known as The Hobbit. Anyways, Billy Bob Doran is sitting there, and Billy Bob Doran is a man, cold as ice, and he's sitting there with Martin Freeman, this insurance salesman, and he tells him this. He goes, your problem is that you've lived your whole life like there's rules. There are no rules. We used to be gorillas. And that night, Martin Freeman goes and beats his wife to death with a hammer, and that is the logical conclusion of atheism, and the writers of that show realize that. But you may go, Jesse, that's all fiction. That's all fiction. I mean, nobody would ever literally think atheism out like that. Nobody would ever follow to its conclusion. Well, I can think of a few people who did. Just give you an example, Oliver Wendell Holmes said this, Morals are more or less arbitrary, Do you like sugar in your coffee or not? Morals, for those of you who are like young, morals means right and wrong. Morals are more or less arbitrary. Do you like sugar in your coffee or don't you? So as to truth, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance greater than that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. That's what Oliver Wendell Holmes says. He's just thinking out his atheism. But here's the deal. Oliver Wendell Holmes went on to become a Supreme Court justice in the United States. And when Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, got this idea where he thought, you know what? Let's put this Darwinism stuff to good use. Let's let's take criminals, and let's take women who sleep around, and let's take retarded people, and let's take people with cerebral palsy, and let's take people with any kind of a physical handicap, and let's imprison them against their will and forcibly sterilize them. And when a case came before the Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes said this, three generations of imbeciles is enough. And this wasn't in Nazi Germany, this was in America. Oliver Wendell Holmes and and, uh, Francis Dalton forcibly sterilized 65,000 American citizens against their will. See, that's what happens when you think atheism out to its logical conclusions. But you go, oh, that's cruel, Jesse. That's inhumane. But here's the deal. If we come from nothing, in the end, nothing matters. It doesn't matter if you're cruel or kind. Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a French philosopher, he put it like this. All human activities are equivalent And are doomed to failure. Thus, it amounts to the same thing, whether one gets drunk alone or is the leader of nations. Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of it being eternal. See, let's suppose for a minute that God doesn't exist. And when you die, you die. Well, here's what that means. It means that no matter what you do, you're just going to die one day. And then all of your children are going to die. And then all of your grandchildren are going to die. And then their children are going to die. And then one day the universe is going to go cold and dark. And whether you are a humanitarian or a mass murderer, it all ends the same. In the end, whether you feed the poor or eat the poor, it all ends exactly the same. But here's the thing, most atheists haven't thought that out. They haven't thought out theological conclusion, they live like good people, and they live like moral people, and they live like nice people, and they live like friendly people, but they're being inconsistent. All right, we got one final point tonight. This is where the, where the hope kicks in. You ready for this? Christianity is not based on a historical event, or uh, Christianity is based on a historical event, not a private experience. See, what, what my college professor told me is he said, the resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead, oh yeah, like the Easter bunny in Santa Claus, that was just a myth. That was just a myth that got added on to Christianity hundreds of years later. Jesus was just a teacher who got crucified, and then later, you know, hundreds of years later, the myth of the resurrection grew up, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's how it all happened. But here's the deal. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 6, which says this, Paul says, This is the message I brought to you, the first thing which I received, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that the third day he rose again, he was seen by Peter and by the twelve, then he was seen by over 500 witnesses. Here's the thing, virtually all scholars agree that Corinthians may be the earliest document of the New Testament, that it may have been written about 15 years after Jesus died, and that this particular passage was a creed that the early church had been passing around the Mediterranean. So this verse saying that Christ died, was buried, was raised the third day, was seen by the twelve, was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses at once, that this was the original format of Christianity. That without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. And Paul goes on and he says, if Christ is not raised, our faith is worthless and our preaching is useless. And so what I've been trying to communicate to you is really this concept. If there's no God, if there's no afterlife, if there's no heaven, there's no hell, it doesn't matter if you fight climate change. It doesn't matter if you feed the poor. It doesn't matter if we make it to Mars. Death is still going to get you. And one day, no one will remember any of it. If there's no God, nothing matters. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, everything matters. Everything matters. And that's the core of our faith. And it's not this this blind, wishy-washy, abstract concept. It's a historical event that shattered human history, that rocked the Roman Empire, that went around the world, that we're still talking about him today because he got back up from the grave. He defeated death. He came to save us. See, human rights make more sense if there's a God. And science makes more sense if there's a God. And right and wrong makes more sense if there's a God. And hope makes more sense if there's a God. Jesus is the author writing himself into the story. I'll end with an illustration. You know, when that mass shooting happened in Parkland, Florida, and that shooter killed 17 people, it was one of the worst tragedies you've probably experienced in your whole life. It sent shockwaves across the country. Kids were afraid of going back to school. But one of the worst tragedies about it is that there was a deputy, a deputy named Scott Peterson, who was on campus. When the gunman opened fire, there was a police officer there with his gun who could have stepped in, who could have stopped the carnage, who could have prevented it, who could have saved lives. But instead, he stood on the outside, and he saved himself. And he never went in. He's been prosecuted, and he's not a police officer anymore. But you know what the cross tells us? The cross tells us that when the bullets of sin and death were flying, Jesus didn't stand outside. Jesus came in. And He took the justice that you deserve, and He took the justice that I deserve. And if Jesus really is the author writing Himself in the story, that means that God is a servant. That means that God is a hero. That means that God is love, that God loves his enemies. I wanna just close with this. Just got a few seconds left. Maybe you're a doubter here tonight. We started off in the book of Jude. I wanna end in the book of Jude. I wanna let you know something. John chapter 7, verse 5 says that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. Jude was the little brother of Jesus. Jude says, Be merciful to those who doubt, because Jude was a doubter. And maybe you're a doubter here tonight, but I want you to know you don't have to stay a doubter. Jude, the doubter, became Jude, the believer. Jude, 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 the skeptic, became Jude, the preacher. And Jesus Christ can do the exact same thing with you. God, I pray. That if there's anybody here tonight who who has kind of been on the fence, they, they've been wondering, man, is all this thing true? Does it all make sense? Does it all add up? God, I pray that tonight that, that their roots were deepened, that their faith was deepened. And God, I pray that they just have the courage to, to own up to the fact that they've been doubting, to own up to the fact that they need you. All you want is honesty. Like Skylar was saying, you just want us to, to take the mask off, to stop putting up a front, to be real. You, God won't heal the real you if you won't reveal the real you. So I just, if you've been doubting and, and this message hit home with you tonight, I just want to pray for you. Would you just slip your hand up if you needed this message, if you needed to hear this? Nobody's going to look around. You don't have to be embarrassed. Man, this is a safe space to doubt. I just want to pray for you. Just slip your hand up. God, I pray for these, Lord. I know exactly how they feel. I've been in their shoes. But I've seen that as you begin to ask questions, there are answers. That as we begin to investigate like Luke did, that that we find powerful truth. Lord, I pray for these students. I pray that they would put their hope in you, put their trust in you, and they'd engage their mind. They wouldn't be afraid to think. They wouldn't be afraid to to watch podcasts and watch YouTube videos and read books. And, and, And they'd become powerful witnesses the way Thomas did. They'd become powerful witnesses the way Jude did. Lord, I pray you'd use them. Thank you for this time, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.